On today's show, short story writer and Brazos bookstore manager Mark Haber gets real worked up about LCD sound system and why nothing else will do for writing inspiration. He also gets really meta about the truth and Mario Bayatine. Dear listeners, we'll let you be the judge. But John Grisham has this podcast. <laughs> You're it's like a train wreck. I can't not listen to it. I'm listening to that. Are you? Oh, now I have to, yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Now I've got You're to. You're not actively listening to it. No, no, no. no. I'm like, go. I'm going to listen to this. Is it shitty to ask me to read you like the end of the story? <laughs> no, no, not at all. No. <laughs> Could you please read the last the last page of your novel? Can you sing Roxanne one more time? <laughs> Are you squeaking? Are you squeaking? I'm Jessica, I listened to it. I listened to David Brown's episode. Yes, yes. And there are like four distinct moments when it sounds like you're blowing up <laughs> a balloon and then like <laughs> shifting it and like forming a balloon animal yeah, in the middle of the show. <laughs> I'm Kate Martin-Williams. I'm Jessica Cole. And this is Effing Shakespeare. By writers, for writers. In addition to managing Houston's very, very best independent purveyor of books, Brazos Bookstore, and curating some bang-on reading series, book groups, author events, and basically doing his damnedest to keep all of us Houstonians in the literary know, in his other life, Mark Haber is an accomplished writer. At turns hilariously funny and prophetically terrifying, the experience of reading his short story collection, Deathbed Conversions, which is also published as a beautiful bilingual collection called Melville's Beard, is what I imagine it would be like to eavesdrop on David Foster Wallace, Kafka, and Valeria Luisielli swapping story ideas at a bar, one virtuoso attempting to out the other. A champion of work in translation, as well as for translators themselves, Haber was a juror for the 2016 and 2017 Best Translated Book Award. Translations ask us to cross borders. To read more widely is to make the world smaller and more knowable. Haber's own writing asks us to cross foreign borders too. Sometimes, though, it's the border standing between a husband and a wife, or a captor and his captives, or the academy from real life readers. For us real life readers, Haber's work leaves us hands upturned, wondering about the very nature of these dividing lines of class, gender, country. Leaves us wondering about our complicity in setting the world in motion in these ways and about its many unforgiving norms. His work throws me off balance, makes me more aware and more curious. And isn't that what good writing is supposed to do? Mark Haber, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That was very, very flattering. Thank you. That was all very nice things to say and very generous. Well, they're Uh, all true. Thank you. Uh, I'm happy to be here. It's great having a guest on the show that's you're such a big fan of it's it's uh (laughs) so such a privilege to be able to get into your head and uh, talk to you about these things. Thank you. Yeah, I wonder if you could start us off by maybe reading a little. Sure, sure. Um, uh, from Melville's beard, if you don't mind. Absolutely. Is it shitty to ask me to read you like the end of the story? <laughs> no, no, not at all. No. <laughs> Could you please read the last the last page of your novel? Hey, can you sing Roxanne one more time? For us? <laughs> um, oh, all right. This is from the story Melville's Beard. All right. Um, this is a story I don't have to explain probably, but about Herman Melville, and it's fictional, but it's about. Um, I don't know if I should talk about the story. Sure, at all yeah, bit. go for well, it. It's just about this is. It was the the last story in the collection because to me it's probably the most serious or it's the most really about the most literary. I mean, it's the most about writing or writers. I'd read Moby Dick and was at a later age when I think you should read it. I don't think they they give it to people too young. And it struck me. And then I became obsessed for like a year or two with Herman Melville and how he just kind of wrote the book and then fell into obscurity. I mean, he was alive for like another 30 years. He wrote it when he was 32 and then he worked on like some epic poems and, and a couple stories, but... Uh, and when he died, his um, uh, the New York newspaper misprinted it as Henry Melville. I mean, so just just no one, you know, he'd written this book, and it, you know, it's 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 a classic, and it, so it was all about the idea of uh, of 
of writing, the compulsion to write, and, uh, and obscurity, things like that. So, okay, so he's, he's walking the streets of, of Manhattan. Uh, Melville's shadow struck the side of a building where an advertisement for chewing tobacco had been painted. More than 30 years remained in his life to watch the city manifold, cables of electricity fashioned across streets like lines of laundry with no clothes, the depths of earth, of earth giving birth to subway cars that rumbled beneath the concrete like monsters fighting, the mosquito buzzing of neon signs that held the promise of apocalypse. These inventions yet to occur, Melville felt the presage in his soul, all of this left to see in his life. The earth didn't spin, he mused. It lunged. All afternoon he walked, already a ghost, the sun ebbing behind the cavernous haunts of Manhattan. Still, he couldn't staunch the flow of words. Pity, defeat, toil, so much toil in this single life, toil and toil, and even confronting death where there is toil, it never ends. Living and dying are both so much toil. What is one left with but the work of one's own life, which again is toil? Melville never thought of words like literature. Literature was a word used by students, publishers, critics. Melville was literature. It coursed his veins, carried its scent with each drawn breath, absorbed into his skin like soot in a coal mine. Melville thought of literature the way a painter thinks of color, and that they don't. Don't accept it nor fight it. It's simply there, suspended, suffused with the soul, an appendage of their lives never asking for consent. And even had he sat down to write out his wits would have still haunted him, or I'm sorry, <laughs> And even had he sat down to write out his wits, he would have been still haunted by words, awoken the next day replenished. He didn't ask for this gift, this curse, the same way a sleeping person never asked for dreams. The sun diminished. Men in top hats walked the streets with poles, lighting the lampposts. The pungent smells of family dinners clashed in the night, graduating to the sense of bitter coffee and, and other wealthier avenues cigars. Literature. What a sad, silly gorge we make of ourselves when all is said, when what's got to be set down is set down and done. Man emptied like a shell. He thinks better of himself. I will wire Hawthorne. The boys need shoes. The post office in his borough is already closed, but this doesn't stop him. When did the library's hours stop him? Liz is right. Must come back to earth. No more oceans or seas. No more grass skirts or passages from the Bible. That world has died. Herman Melville, sad old man at 32, an obituary already written tries the door of the post office, knowing he succeeded in failing once again. The door is locked, and to appease his conscience, he even knocks. No one answers. So good. Thanks. So good. <laughs> I love the line, he didn't ask for this gift, this curse, the same way a sleeping person never asked for dreams. Thank you. Yeah. Jess, I don't know if you heard, if you were in on the part where Mark said he does have a couple novels. Oh, no, I didn't. Yeah, no. so those are, I didn't even have to ask him. Oh, because... see, I, I uh, yeah, I just, <laughs> just I offered that himself. information. <laughs> so I have two that I'm, I'm shopping around right now that a, a couple of publishers are looking at. So fingers crossed and, and we'll see, but I, I'm, I'm really happy with them. So we'll see. Yeah. 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 yeah so you're, you're shopping two around at once. Yeah, because yeah, uh, he just, you know, wrote a couple novels in a year, he said. No, yeah. I, I started one and it took two or three years, like while I was teaching. Uh, and then I started one that's very slim. It's really a novella. And that I wrote in a year. But I finished them both in the same year. I didn't write both in a year. So, so that's, that's still that's a lot. Amazing. Yeah, it is. That's a it lot. Is, but that's fantastic. Yeah. So, so we'll see. But I guess you're probably querying different agents for each one if one's in the Well, you know what's weird is there's so many different ways, and you learn a lot working at a bookstore because you meet the writers, you're, you become friends with publishers. There are other avenues as far as, I mean, it's difficult. Any avenue you take is difficult, but uh, I, I, I did start querying agents, but there's also, there are publishing houses that will look at unagented writers that'll, that some even prefer it. I don't know exactly which ones, but some, it, it's weird. Publishing is changing, and I don't know... Uh, it's in flux how it will be as time goes on, but it seems like there's more room for writers that don't always have representation. So it's so good to hear. And yeah. it's actually a question that we had for you that I I sent off the questions to you. Yes. And like four minutes later, I had this like face palm moment where I'm like, how did I not ask him a question about being a bookseller sure. and in your interesting place in the publishing world sure I mean, you're a distributor for right. these these it's yeah it's weird there's also lots of uh the general manager of brazos ben ben rybeck had a novel come out uh just a little over a year ago with unnamed press out of los angeles 
And so there are booksellers that are, are writers and it's become almost like a, like a thing, like a joke, you know? But I think with this growth of independent bookstores across the country, when I say growth, I mean that it's a really good time. More opening, more succeeding. In the last three or four years, Brazos has, has done better and better. It's books, so you're never going to, I mean, it's always the profit. It's like you just squeak by. But um, I think with thin. what's going on in the country, people, uh, and then when all the borders closed, you know, the borders bookstores, people realize we can't let these things go. We need a community space where people can meet and share ideas and talk about books and, and literature. So you see people come in, people are visiting Houston and they come in like, oh, that smell, books. And, <laughs> and I, you know, I'm there all the time. I don't smell anything. So I'm like, oh yeah, sure, books. <laughs> So, so there, there is, um, it is a weird place to be where you're kind of a distributor or a seller of books, but, um, there is this kind of, uh, movement of people that are highly qualified. I mean, uh, we had a guy that worked at the store for a while that had a doctorate from Stanford. Uh, you see people that are like, I don't want to do this life anymore. I'd rather maybe not make a lot of money, but be around something to do something every day that I love. So. Yeah. So I think uh, there's it's a good time for, for independent bookstores. <laughs> I don't know why I keep bringing this up, but Fu's going to yell at me. But John Grisham has this podcast. <laughs> it's like a train wreck. I can't not listen to it. I am listening to that. Are you? Now I have to, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Now I've got you're to. You're not actively listening to it. No, no, no. I'm like, go. I'm going to listen to this now. Just just for what you like, said. Oh, my God. I liked her for a moment, and then I listened to this podcast, and now I can't. Oh, no, no. This you're, is... you're just mesmerized by John Grissom. I'm with you. Okay, Charles. let me explain. It is. It's his, it's his accent. I can't help it. But, but uh, it's so problematic for me because... And John Grisham, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the show. <laughs> and ask you all about the All about your fantastic. Um, no, so he does this great thing where he goes to independent booksellers around the country. Wow. And and stops at their shop uh-huh. and um, interviews the bookseller. Wow. And also brings one of his awesome writer friends. So it's John Grisham. Right. And somebody else awesome. Sure. At a bookshop that's wow. like super tiny and independent and doing amazing stuff. Yeah. So the premise is good, Foo. It's a good thing. <laughs> She's Even if me. he's like, he's like out of touch with, yeah. you know, what regular writers have to do and go through. So he like, he makes these comments. This is awful. He's just so this, out of touch, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. He makes these comments like, yeah, I just stopped touring because I mean, I didn't like it. <laughs> You know, like, well, other people, like, he had, just to get the last episode, other he writers had, are thinking about, they've got to do their laundry, you know, they're like, what are we, a tour, yeah, what? He was asking about, eat. like, how the internet affected querying to somebody, like, it, so it must be easier now to query for... <laughs> what, he hasn't queried since, like, the 70s. Because you don't have to print it out. Yeah. Oh, sh- oh, that is out of touch. But, you know, that it's and like Ron Rash was on the show with him. They were in, um, I think they were in Nashville. Malaprops? Was um, it? No, they did do a show at Malaprops. Yeah, but, Malaprops. Yeah. Um, but I forget where Ron Rash was. I don't think it was there. But he, okay. but I could just, I was like, oh, I wonder what Ron is thinking. Because he like actually has to tour to like sell books. Sure. You know, right. Oh, because I was talking about independent booksellers. Sure, sure. And what an interesting place they have to sort of champion yeah. Good writers, local writers, you know, writers it's, that you like. Yeah, it's you know. fantastic. Yeah. There's this Colombian author, Santiago Gamboa, who's actually coming to the bookstore next month in the middle of September, September 25th. And I was a customer at Brazos uh, when I was teaching high school, bought his first book. It's He's published by Europa that does like the Ferrante books and, mm-hmm. you know, really great publisher out of Italy, but also out of New York. And I bought his book, Necropolis and read it and was like, oh my God. And I could find nothing on this guy online. Like this guy was like kind of like a mystery. And the book's like 500 pages and it was the first book I read that really reminded me of Roberto Bolaño. I'm like, oh, this yeah. is like just, oh my gosh. So then you get the advanced copies of books, you know, when you work at the bookstore. So about two, three years later, I'm at the bookstore one day and I see the advanced copy of his next book, Night Prayers. And I proceed when it comes out to sell like almost 200 copies because I love this book and I love this writer. And I like Night Prayers as much as So like single-handedly, like single-handedly putting the book in people's putting hands. Putting in the book that's, and, and yeah. just really, really. And Europa awesome. notices this. I mean, that's why he's going, like he's doing a book tour in New York, LA, but Houston. 
because they're, you know, because they, they know that he has an audience here now. Oh so to me, it's like, this isn't me patting my back. This is me saying, wow, I was able to share this thing that I love that maybe would have gone unnoticed if I hadn't been able to do this. So at the end of the day, I'm just an enthusiast. And I'm like, yeah. I can't believe I was able to share this thing that other people responded and obviously liked it as well. So it's fantastic. And I'll get to meet him and, and awesome. uh, he'll read at the store. And that's great. Yeah. So how, how do you know Scott Esposito? I was just a big fan of his uh, uh, website, Quarterly Conversation. Mm-hmm. And the more you work in books, it's such a small world. Publishers, writers, things like that. So some of the people that I just, you know, I don't want to say dream, but always thought, oh my God, that'd be great to know you, you get to know them because it's such a small world, especially independent bookstores and independent publishers. There's a, I don't know, a special relationship. I think there's the same kind of ethos just mm. as far as, you know, doing things that are, are good and, and real. And so small bookstores and small publishers kind of uh, have a similar goal. So he is also works as a publicist for Two Lines Press out of uh, San Francisco. They are also, like Open Letter, a publisher who publishes strictly books in translation. Mm-hmm. And they only probably do six titles a year, Two Lines Press, but they're always just stellar. They're just beautiful books, aesthetically as well as the books themselves. So, so I think from just writing reviews, being a juror on the Best Translated Book Award for a couple of years, we kind of were in similar circles and just got to know each other. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So, and I was a huge admirer of his, uh, of his criticism. He's just a really, I think, smart writer. So yeah. 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 Is he on LitHub too? Does he write? Yeah. He writes a lot for LitHub. He's written some really great pieces recently too. Jess, I don't know if you remember this. We, I just come out of doing a chapter. It was an, it was a novel writing workshop and I had mm-hmm. given my chapter that day. Right. And I was recounting mm-hmm. to Jessica oh. and our friend Laura and I don't think Laura knew the premise of the novel. And so I was telling her about my days in Nicaragua when I'd been there for a couple months. And, sure. Um, sort of, you know, just kind of gave her the premise. And then left and literally listened to This American Life that weekend. And um, David Sedaris was on. And he tells this horrifying short story about, like, I don't know if he was reading a short story if, or if he was just telling the story on the show right. about um, some, you know, white privileged youth going to Guatemala, <laughs> some Latin American country, and sure. then coming back all um, all overzealous about yeah, starry eyed right. yeah, and it, like the big point in the sh- in the sh- like I'm blushing even saying this, right. but the big po- pl- uh, point in the sh- in funny part of the story is when he says that the person changes the way they pronounce the word. Right. So right. they might say Nicaragua, which is, you know. Right, right. You say it. And right. the entire the entire class, when I was talking about my, you know. Right. In the workshop, I had said it that way the whole time. <laughs> and here I was condemned by David Sedaris, you know. And the, it was... Human foibles. Fucking worst. Yeah. It was the worst. And I had said it in front of my friends too. And Jess, I think you even said like I think you said something about it. It was it was just so you to make you feel better, uh <laughs> before I met Efren and Marco, I'm like, oh Monterey. And now I try and go Monterey. Uh-huh. You, you know, do try, you do say it. I do, and do say they, it. That. Do they and give I, you shit about it? They don't, but they're probably just very nice guys. So <laughs> <laughs> like I used to say Efren, and it's pronounced Efren. like you would say a friend. A friend. Uh-huh. So that's not the pronunciation, it's just the cadence. But I try and, but I think it's just part of it. I don't think someone like you, I would think, would do it to, it's not, predict, you're just trying to say a word the right way. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. It's not like you're like, you know, <laughs> trying to change the world. How so. did you say, Kate, did you say burrito? <laughs> burrito? <laughs> if I were talking about a small donkey, I probably would have said that. <laughs> But if I were talking about, you know, chipotle. (laughs) Chipotle. Chipotle. Yeah, no, it was was embarrassing. But it does bring, I think it brings me to a serious question, actually. Yeah. About this idea of crossing borders. Sure. Um, You know, and who gets to tell whose story. Sure. I don't know. I don't know. I struggle with it a lot. Me too. Right? I, mean, I read so much literature from other countries that 
I mean, that's something that comes up, but also one of the books that I've written that I'm, I'm shopping around takes place in Mexico. Okay. It's first person. The person telling the story is Mexican. Who am I to write as a Mexican? Exactly. You so, know, yeah. I have no right to do that, but when I did the reading in Monterrey, um, <laughs> I was explaining this to the audience and I said, you know, but it's absurd. It's not meant to be Mexico. Like when you, it's just like my stories, when you read it, it's, um, I don't know, it's hyper-reality. It's, 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 it's based in reality, but it's not. You read it and you know that you're kind of in another world. Um, and everyone in the audience kind of said, you're, you're fine. We give you permission. As Mexicans, write whatever you want. Uh-huh. So I think it's good to be conscious of that and to not try and you know, steal the voice of someone else. Um, it is a fine line. But I, I think, and maybe I'm just making myself feel better with, with what I wrote, um, it's based in Mexico, but not a real Mexico. It's a Mexico that doesn't exist. So it's almost like the Mexico of your imagination, which in a way is as valid as, as anything else. I mean, Franz Kafka's first novel, America, the Statue of Liberty is holding a sword. And it's not that he wanted to change it. He'd gotten it wrong. So he writes a book mm. in America or takes place, and he's never been to America. So I think at the end of the day, um, it's all fiction. You know, I think that you, you have a responsibility to not try and um, misrepresent. I think a lot of it is the, um, the angle you take. Um, you don't want to mis- rip, uh, misrepresent a people or a place. Um, but I think if your intentions are, are good and people know that, uh, it's fiction, that it's usually, that's, that's enough, but mm-hmm. I'm not sure. So yeah, Zadie, Zadie Smith, do you remember this food when we went and she, she was asked the same question sure. she, um, about, I guess swing time had just come out. She was reading from swing time and, sure. and she said it's important, you know, she, she said, I don't want to get bogged down in this idea that only a black person can tell sure a black person's perspective sure. or story she said it's when you take on their story and drown out their ability to if, if you're telling it and yeah. no one else gets to tell it exactly. or your voice is louder exactly yeah i think it's good to be conscious uh, of of what you're saying and who you're trying to speak for and as long as you're doing that i think it's it's good i know it sounds kind of general to say as long as you have good intentions but as long as you're conscious that what you're doing is not trying to you know whatever usurp other people's voice i almost feel like we have a greater burden like if we're gonna do it then you better Better, fucking do it well right 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 and that's okay that's okay with me yeah because i so very much want to tell the story absolutely i think that's fair i think that's more than fair um this is uh this compulsion you've got this person's voice inside you where you want to tell their story it's 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 empathy it's what you're doing. It's you're, you're writing this person and you're going to create empathy with your readers and you have empathy for this person you've created. So there's nothing bad about empathy. So no, keep doing it. The world needs more of it. Yeah. A lot more. Yeah. And, right now. And so, so I think that's a huge thing about reading and translation and, and, uh, and writing from a place. Maybe you're not, it's not like, like Sadie Smith said, it's not that you're trying to, sp- maybe you're trying to speak for these people, but you're not trying to take their voices away. You're just sure. trying to, you're trying to create empathy, you sure. know? So yeah. I'm not really a biographical or autobiographical writer. I'm just not. People are like, oh, you did this thing. Like when I lived in L.A. for the first two years, uh, I was a nanny in Beverly Hills. Um, oh, that's a great story. I'm like, I have nothing. To, I don't. I don't really. I'm more an imaginative on. writer. I no. really don't have things to pull to use. I don't know. I don't have that ability. It's not my DNA to pull things that happened to me and put it in stories. I, I just don't do that really. Wow. Yeah. If Jess and I did not have that gene, we would not we write be writers. Stories. Yeah, no, no, and that's a no good thing. Yeah, I'm the one that's 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 <laughs> that's, that's lacking in a way. I don't. I'm not sure how to do that. So, so the scene where Melville's wife gives him shit about like oh, sure. not getting uh not getting the money back from Nathaniel Hawthorne. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's not that's not at all. I'm sure your wife is a lovely woman. Oh sure, sure, but but I have had these conversations. This is one of my questions actually. Yeah. is about this sort of. You know, it is, it is, it does get the label of as absurd literature, absurdist. Sure. But then there are moments when I'm like, no, that happened. That, that right. is my. Right. That. If it doesn't have that, it's just silly, probably. Yeah, it yeah, it yeah. needs to have that kind of anchor in, in reality. <laughs> she says, uh, <laughs> you're $50, he exploded. Well, you read it, 106 in the middle. Okay. You're $50 to explode. If it were mine, I wouldn't be hearing about it. If it were yours, you'd have spent it on drink, on ink. Up yours. Up yours. Good for nothing. Whore. Hack. 
Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, we yeah. had that argument this morning, my I, wife and you know I. What I'm so, you know. <laughs> no, I will tell this story about my husband. One time, I, he's probably not going to listen. No, he'll listen to the show. I'll make him listen to the yeah. show. Yeah. But wh- one time, we I got this like giant bag of dog food from Amazon. It was sure. like, like the big 50 pound bag. Right. I'm like, babe, could you, uh, before you go, you know, he was like leaving for a trip. I was like, could you just, could you just pour that in the like, thing that we have to dish it out right the big tupperware it's a huge thing. bag yeah. right. and uh and he's like yeah sure i'll, I'll handle I, I think i just said can you handle the dog food before you go because it's on the front porch and so I, <laughs> he like leaves and goes to work and i like pick up some kids and move them places right. and i get back <laughs> and the bag is literally like it's in it's still in its bag all the dog food just and then but the bag is shoved into the plastic Tupperware and doesn't fit completely in the Tupperware box. It's like a third of the bag is sticking out of the top. And I swear to God, he put the lid like on top of the bag. <laughs> that is, that's brilliant. And it's, it's funny because I would probably do the same thing. Like obviously that's just a guy thing, rush. I think. Yeah. Like, but it's also, I'm like, am I... Am, am I in the middle of like a Wes Anderson movie? Yeah, what is, is this, this right. a Mark Haber short story? Right. You know, like what is? Is he like got a camera filming? Like when oh, I, I punked her. Was the, yeah, right. that's what I did with some quirky music. You know, some right. quirky Wes Anderson music in the background. I love it. Like, but that is so. That's like, is it you know, art imitating life? Or sure, life imitating art. Yeah. But you just told me it doesn't come from real life for you. It really does. I mean, I think some things do. I mean, unconsciously, I'm sure they do, but. Um, I don't know where it comes. I mean, a part of it is just the the kind of the the magic of imagination, and I think it's from from uh, just being a voracious reader in books that I read. A lot of times, yeah. the thing that's that gets it started is is a word. I'll read a word in a book and go, "That's a great word," and then I'll have a paragraph, and pretty soon the paragraph uh, becomes what becomes a story. It's weird. A word can can start a short story. Do you? Is there so, one in deathbed that? I, I know there is. Probably yeah. the majority are, were written that way. I do know, and you know what? I have to take back everything I said. The parking question, <laughs> that is based on reality. Okay, I take that back. Oh, good. I worked at a hotel. I made you tell the truth. Yes, thank you. I, I was lying and didn't know it. <laughs> Most of them, I don't think, you know, are, are autobiographical. And obviously the, the story, the parking question, where um, they end up building parking garages for Europe in the, the Sahara is not really based on truth. But I was working at a hotel, a fancy hotel in St. Petersburg. It was, uh, I guess I was just finishing school before I started teaching. There were days where you had to park far away because they were having events. And, and like when baseball teams would come in like the Yankees to play the Tampa Bay Devil Rays, they would stay at this hotel, very fancy. And I waited tables there. And I remember I parked in the garage one day, probably knowing better, and I got a ticket like from the hotel for like 25 bucks. Oh, so like I'm going to wait tables and they just ticketed the place where they ticketed me $25. And I was irate. And I started to write this letter I was going to send to the hotel, which I never finished. <laughs> But it was about this just idea of parking. Like, it's this little space of uh, on earth that you need to put your vehicle on. And it's become this, you know, I know there's people when I lived in LA, he was like, oh, that guy's the parking garage magnet. He's like, his life is made off of parking. And it's just the idea that parking is kind of absurd. You know, it's the whole idea of parking is ridiculous. So um, it just went from there. So that is based in reality. We, you and I had a meeting one morning. We were talking about Bloomsday and we had a meeting and I remember absolutely nothing about the meeting except that we were sitting next to Houston's very own, no, it was Dallas's very own um, parking magnate. Really? And all I remember, I don't know if you remember this, we had um, oatmeal that morning. Uh-huh. I remember the oatmeal yeah, and then they, I remember they them, they couldn't make oatmeal. Oh. But the guy next to me, I'm sure had people make his oatmeal because they were talking about $75 charges that they regularly received, recouped in Dallas on parking garages for hotels. $75 a night. That's insane. And I don't remember. Do you, do you remember that day? Yeah. And I kept looking at you like, foo. Like I was just eavesdropping. Right, like right. I'm like, foo, how, how are they? Do, why, we're in the wrong business. Right, exactly. <laughs> Parking's where it's at. He's like, hey, God damn it. Look at this website. Help me. Like, I can't focus. Yeah, <laughs> but and you then know, you wrote the short story. It's yeah, amazing, but you, know? you do. You yeah. live in any kind of urban area, and you realize that, that that parking is a thing. It's you know, there's people, lots of people. It's very dense. There's lots of cars, obviously, and it's a thing. So <laughs> the the story just kind of came out of that. So that's right. 
we here at uh, Effing Shakespeare love uh, the short story skin part porcelain. Oh yes, yeah, it's, it's so such nicely. a it's such a filthy story. <laughs> there's one. I mean, my wife laughs. There's one particular paragraph. I don't know where it is, but I was so proud that I was able to put the word ass in it like 25 times in a paragraph. Can you sum up the story? Can you sure? Better? Well, what you said in one of the questions was right on. Is that it's kind of a, a satire on um on academia or um. There's this, I don't know if you know the band LCD Sound System. They're just like a kind of electronic, uh, you know, alternative band, dance band. And uh, he has this one song and he has this line and he says, uh, killing it with close inspection. And I love that because I think a lot of times when you're in a, maybe in an MFA program or you're, you, you, you end up killing the magic of things by dissecting it too much. Um, and sometimes things should be left alone. So it was kind of a satire of... of um, People become obsessed and trying to read too much into something that maybe it is there, maybe it's not, but not letting everyone have their own kind of version of, of a poet or his work. So um, I just started writing the satire of, about this poet, Luther Owens, and his body of work, and I made him this kind of rebellious 60s poet that he ends up getting this following, and then I think he has a breakdown, and uh, he has this huge change, and he writes this epic um, uh, in the mental hospital. Um, and it's called Ass Ballads, and it's and it's this huge. I forget how big it is. It's thousands of I think 600, lines. Six hundred thousand words. Six hundred thousand words, all about the the ass. He says he says it's worthy to note. Continues Lowry that not once in the six hundred thousand words of Ass Ballads does the word buttocks appear. Owens wasn't interested in the ass, but the asshole. That should be made clear. I've argued with colleagues about this for years. Luther isn't looking for redemption amidst the ass or the ass region at all. No, the buttocks themselves appear as mere asides. (laughs) That's the point where Eric's like, you cannot read this book anymore at night because you keep waking up the dog. Thank you. The Shakespearean question. Um, so I think you, I don't know if you know, Mark, but how we came up with the title of sure. our podcast is that, of course, it was not the first one we thought of. It was probably the 900th, maybe. And because everything we were thinking was like, wait, is that Shakespeare? Right. <laughs> of course, it's freaking Shakespeare. Um, and also, yeah, it's fucking Shakespeare. He's so amazing. Like, why even, this is why we don't do all those things, Kate, because Shakespeare did them all already. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> And everyone else, and Marquez, and you know, whatever. Every, everyone else we want to throw into that. Um, but if you, Mark, had to point to uh, one work of Shakespeare that most influences your writing, what hmm. would it be? Do you have one? It's going to be a total cliche. And maybe it's because I taught it, um, but probably Hamlet. Um, I mean, Hamlet's Hamlet. It's great, It's but it is one of his more well-known ones. But um I don't know. I mean, everything is easy. He kind of invented everything. Everything is in there. I mean, that and yeah. um, I'm a huge fan of, of uh, Cervantes or Don Quixote as well, Cervantes. But mm-hmm. um, probably Hamlet. But also, you know what? I love his, um, I mean, his plays are kind of a given. But uh, his, um, I taught his poetry in AP. Mm-hmm. And someone, I think, was telling me when I was like in this AP training course that if you want to teach students to read and understand poetry, teach them uh, Shakespeare's sonnets mm-hmm. and it's really really true I mean it's not just that they're good to teach people how to read poetry but they're just really incredible really and it's, incredible. it's sort of like the entryway for them to be able to understand the language and the plays as well that's true yeah okay. and it's not as daunting because it's not like a an 80 page play it's like oh it's right, a sonnet right. you know yeah. but probably Hamlet you know I'm not as well versed in Shakespeare as I probably should be you know I've read quite a few of his plays and I know his place obviously in his stature and all of it's obviously well deserved. He he's fucking Shakespeare. Fucking <laughs> Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. Well, I do, and I think probably every writer that we interview is probably going to say Hamlet because you yeah, know really. the whole idea of you know yeah we've heard it we've heard it already. Plots, yeah. No, there are actually only three plots. No, actually, there's only one plot. And that's right. Himself, right, and that's that would be Hamlet in the most kind of perfect form. So. Yeah. 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 There's so much in it. There's so much psychology in that play. It's yeah. It's magnificent and how do you make your connections to you know like i mean there's so many brand new presses sure how do how do you develop those relationships 
a lot of times they're going to approach you. They'll approach the bookstore because they want you to hopefully read what they have and like it and then and then promote it, like, you know, try and sell it in the store. So a lot of times they'll approach you um, or you may find a book in the bookstore one day. You're just randomly looking like, oh, this is – and you look at the back. You see the publisher and you can reach out to them. But uh, usually they'll, they'll come – you know, they'll reach out to you via email or something and say, hey, uh, Feminist Press has a book coming out by I think a Puerto Rican writer – and they said, hey, would you look at this book? And, uh, and if you have time, blurb it for, for the advanced copy if mm-hmm. you like it. So they're, they're wanting to get the, the voices of booksellers because they know that's kind of a good feather in their cap or whatever. And so. what percentage of your time is spent doing that, <laughs> combing um, through these It's requests? weird because there's so much fighting for your attention at a bookstore. Like there's so many yeah. books you want to read. Like my nightstand is, is sad. It's like a tower, two towers of books. Which but, we'll get to later. We have questions. Okay, about you got. Your it. Um, I think what have happened to me since I've worked at the bookstore is you just become a lot more. There's no guilt with me giving up a book if it doesn't like if I, if like I'm thirty or forty pages into it and it's not, then I'm done and I have no guilt because there's all these other things that I, I might love that uh, are asking for my attention. So, do you find yourself drawn to say Gray Wolf or a press that, an imprint that you love that you're gonna? Oh, say oh yes absolutely, to every yeah, time? absolutely, definitely. My all-time favorite is it's a joke in the store. It has been for years. Is New Directions out of New York? They've, they've I think the first. One of the first independent publishers, I think they started in New York City in like 1936, James Laughlin, and they were the first publishers of like Ezra Pound, and I want to say the first English publishers of Nabokov, I don't know, maybe he was already writing in English, Henry Miller, just really great writers, and they were the first ones to publish Roberto Bolaño, you know, back in the early 2000s, and they just have a great aesthetic, they have great taste, but also uh, Grey Wolf, Coffeehouse Press, Riverhead, which has kind mm-hmm. of an imprint of Penguin, but there's so many. I know I'll, I'll forget a lot. Like I'm like doing a thank you speech. I want to thank everyone. I, I know I'm going to forget people. But there's so many great publishers. Doing. Open Letter, of course. The um, Academy for making this all possible. Exactly. Exactly. Open Letter out of Rochester. They do amazing books. Really, really good books. And they look beautiful. And they just and he, he has books translated from, I mean, you name it, Ukraine, uh, you know, Russia, um, uh, Portugal, you name it. And uh, Two Lines Press, that, that uh, translation press out of um, San Francisco. That's got Esposito, uh, the publicist. Right, yeah, right. He works for. What a what? What's your take on the big five these days? They're, I mean, they're 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 needed. They're they're. They I don't publish. Mean to put you on the spot no, no, no. It's know. okay. I just, I just the stuff that I'm drawn to usually isn't the stuff that they publish. It just it, it's not. I have nothing against any of those, but the things that usually speak to me are usually from smaller publishers. But I mean. And why? What do? You, why do you think that is? I mean, Jess and I have our I, own ideas. Yeah, I have, yeah, I have my theory, but I would love to know. Yours. I would love to hear you. I really don't know if I have a theory. Go, Jess, tell us. Yeah, please. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's probably pretty reductive. I, they're they're not nonprofits. They are right. You know, trying to to be um, trying to make money, so they've got sure. to make safer choices and and things that are a sure thing. You know, I mean, I think yeah. Just, but then, but just a more. Go ahead. Sorry, Jess. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just saying, like, you you, you go to the agent's, you know, sites, and they aren't there trying, you know, every single, to a a fault, every single one would say, I want to find the next voice in whatever. You know, I want to champion the the voices that we haven't heard yet. You know, so where's the disconnect? If they're all saying they want the new... You know, they do want the new. They want the new sure thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they want the new thing that's gonna sell. You know, seven hundred thousand copies. Uh, Jess, should we go to the? Uh, should we go to the speed dating yeah. for writers? Yeah. So this is all the stuff that's not in your author's bio. Okay, okay, that's right. So I have no preparation for you this. You have no prep, okay. and uh, it's just a chance for our our listeners to hear who you really are okay (laughs) okay if i did a search and find in your word docs what fancy word would i find you overuse oh wow um is melancholy a fancy word sure okay melancholy melancholy melancholic how about that that's good that's fancier all right (laughs) (laughs) What word do you hate to hear misused and or mispronounced? Um, I 
You were a high Nicaragua? School. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> That's a joke. It's me like bearing my heart to the guest. And right? I just, and look at just you. Yeah. That's a joke completely. That's... Well, there's, I mean, there's, there's words so that I, I think are abused. Like rural Tennessee, and I would go to this randomly amazing bakery in like this town of 800 people, and yeah. I'd ask for a croissant. <laughs> they were just like, what? <laughs> They would ask for a what? She, Jessica, would ask for a croissant. You, you a croissant. croissant. Can I oh. have a croissant? I croissant. Some and they were just like, what are you Who is this person? So, Jessica, all those years ago, when I told you my story about Nicaragua, you did not come out with that story and like had, make me well, feel first, I, had, I hadn't lived in Telescope, Queens, Tennessee yet. but Oh, oh that hadn't yeah. happened. Yeah. Okay, one, we were having a meeting at the bookstore. I'm not going to name names who said it, but I'm almost sure he said it incorrectly, or maybe I've been saying it incorrectly for years, but when things are drawing people apart, it's divisive, right? It's so divisive. It's never divisive, but Thank I hear you. divisive all the time. Me too, and he said divisive, and I kind of recoiled. Like, I, I didn't say anything. Like, divisive? And it's one of those words that sounds like when it's said that way, like you're trying to sound fancy. Well, it's very divisive. It just, it, so it's not that it's... It's not mispronounced like, oh, you're not saying it right. It's mispronounced like there's this kind of, you know, arrogance to it. Mm. But who knows? I could be saying it wrong. So. Uh, Jessica, how do you say it? Divisive. But okay. I wonder if divisive is like British English. It could be. Like, it could yeah. be. But working in books, there's words that I think are abused that are just used too much that you're just like, oh. And we do the same thing too at the store. We say it a lot. Um, I'm, I'm really tired of the word curated. Oh, shit. I think it was in my intro. We say it all the time. No, you don't understand. People come into like the, the bookstore and this, and what do you, like people who are new to the books are like, well, it's curated. So we were joking saying we should remove the word curated from our lingo. It's not, a, it's a bad word. We say it all the time and, and change it to choosy, which is of course just, we're a very choosy bookstore. No, so I'm it's gonna not. going to re-record my intro. No, 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 no. Out. Curated is a great word, but in the bookstore amongst yes. us, we use it yeah. so much sure. because it's, yeah. it, it's, it applies to what we're doing, I guess. Yeah. So word. it is a fancy word, but I don't know. I like the word fine. And then you'll look at the blurbs of books. You're around books. You see all the blurbs. So you see, you know, necessary. Oh, this yeah. book was necessary or, you know, it, things like <laughs> that. It's like, really? Urgent. It's, it's important. It's important. It's urgent. Exactly. Um, yeah. it, exactly. A tour de force. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know the that way, there's the someone. There's find in my novel when it's published. Just so you know, all of those words, I want them in my blurb. I love exactly. There's someone, a uh, um, a friend at Coffeehouse Press, who her running joke on Twitter is she can't stand when uh, a blurb or a description out of a book uses the word luminous. It's uh, like yeah. luminous. So, <laughs> but I think it, a lot of its context. Luminous is a perfectly good word if it's used in a say. You know, it's just you know if you see it on the back of a book a hundred times. If John Grisham walked in those doors, and said to me, "Your book was luminous," I would be totally fine with it. <laughs> yeah, I just want John to know that. Yeah, thank, it is luminous, John. Thank you. The book was quite luminous. <laughs> quite luminous. Oh my God. Uh, what's uh, the okay. what's the title okay. of the Word doc last open on your desktop? House music. Nice. And it has nothing to do with house music. It's what I'm working on. Okay. So, if you weren't a writer, you'd be a, a writer or a bookseller. You'd be a. I guess I would be a teacher. Yeah, teacher. Right. Book that's on your coffee table. Because I think it's really. Uh, important right now and I just pulled off my bookshelf like two nights ago. Did she just call it important? (laughs) It's I think it's really the most important and luminous books I've ever (laughs) it's so urgent but Roberto Bolaño's Nazi literature in the Americas which is a fantastic strange weird book but I thought of what happened in in, you know in this past weekend and I just pulled it off the off the shelf and I need to reread this I don't know if you know about that book or anything but it's yeah really quickly it's um it is basically these biographies of these Latin American writers. He gives the dates and he talks about their life and what they wrote in, in all these writers. And they had fascist sympathies or maybe they were fascist. And all of it is completely made up. However, when you read it, it seems so real. Like she was part of this movement. She wrote with this writer. She became friends with him. And you're reading and it's like you're reading the biography of these Latin American writers in like the you know, 20th century. And you're like, these people exist. And it's all fiction. But it's, it's really intense because it's like the, the possibility that these people exist is so real. Wow. 
So yeah, so it's all about kind of fascist writers of Latin America, but uh, they're fake biographies. Tell us about your towers, your dark towers on your nightstand. Oh, like what's on there? Yeah. Oh, sure. Um, the book I've been trying to get to all year, and I just keep being pushed back, is a book called Compass. Uh, it's published by New Directions, and it's a French writer. And it was uh, on the shortlist for like the, the, the Booker Prize or the Booker International Prize. Mm-hmm. And it's all just about this one man. The, the oh, author's I name is... I just read about this. I think. Did you put it on your uh, list? I may have. Matthias Ennard. Yeah. yeah. I'm probably not giving his name justice. But it, he... Um, it's all about this one man in one evening, and it's like a 600-page book, who I think uh, is he's ill, he smokes some opium, and he kind of goes into this opium dream. And it's all about the history of the West and the East and how there are these kind of concepts that we've invented. And you know, the East and the West have always actually been these, these things that have worked together. He even said in an interview, you know, Don Quixote is the main character is based on someone that came out of uh, out of Persia or something like that. So it's a really learned, poetic, beautiful book. It seems like so that's on my nightstand. Nazi literature, the Americas. I'm just finishing rereading Court McCarthy's The Road for book group at mm-hmm. the bookstore. What's the book on the back of your toilet? <laughs> this really is the one that stumps people. <laughs> yeah, um, just to go, John Grissom book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> really quickly, <laughs> The Lieutenant by John Grisham. Um. <laughs> true confessions i'm reading a john grisham book right now because it's about a bookseller it's called camino island yes that's his most recent yeah and we've had that in the bookstore it was like a summer read sure i don't know nobody's gonna like me anymore no it's you it's good it's a summer read it's yeah it's funny we've we've had in the store you can't judge people from what they read you know in front of them so I'm totally, I'm totally kidding. I'm totally, no, no, we sell that book. You're reading. It's like, you, it, it's it's all good. It's, you know. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite place to read? Um, As I've as I've gotten older, bed. I love reading in bed. I don't know why. Mm. I'll write in bed. I mean, this is so unromantic. I write a lot of my stuff in bed on my phone, on my <laughs> notes. Isn't that horrible? <laughs> it's horrible. What? But it's, it, it is what it is. So what I do, when I say write, I don't mean like it's this... I'll write ideas if I'm in bed. I save it on my notes. I email the notes to my to myself. And the next morning, when I, I usually write in the morning. Uh-huh. So the next morning, I get that email and I cut copy or paste the notes into the document that I'm working on. So oh, when I, I say write, I mean not the finished product at all. I mean I write on on my <laughs> like- on my computer. Yeah, yeah, not on my phone. But a lot of times the germs of the ideas are the are I, I get down on my phone. So I, see that. I wish it was romantic. It's not. Re- no, I think that isn't. Excellent. I don't know how romantic it is. And but it's it real. Really it is. Matter, but I think it's, that's a really, I don't know, like a, a soft landing into the, into the blank page the next That's day. also you true. Oh, yeah. It is a soft landing because you wake up and you've got, oh, I've got those two paragraphs I jotted down last night. You're right. It's a very, very awesome. psychologically soft landing because you've got that stuff that you go, well, I can work off that instead of looking at, at the blank page. So um, if you want to Google an interesting writer, a Mexican writer, his name is Mario Beatin. And he mm-hmm. is, uh, he was born with one of his, I think his writer's left arm, not formed fully. So it kind of ends at the elbow. And he's really writes these really strange, cool, little tiny novels. And, but he puts these apparatuses where his arms should be like almost like art installations. And one is like a big dildo. One is like this piece of art. I mean, he's a really eccentric, cool writer out of Mexico City. He studied film in Cuba. He's a Sufi, a mystic. He's really out there. But anyways, this gets back to, I knew a a person at a publishing house that knew him and said, oh, he would walk around and he would write on his uh, his iPod touch, like on his shoulder. Because, you know, he has one arm and he would just kind of type and like, this enigmatic, weird character writes on his iPod Touch. So, whatever works, you know. Whatever works. What, as long as you can get the words down. So, dear listeners, if you are driving, we are going to be linking to all of these um, oh, cool. awesome, awesome suggestions from Mark. So, don't wreck trying to remember yes. everything. Mario Bayatine, Google Images, and you'll get some pretty cool stuff. Oh my God. Yeah. But probably don't do it at work. Yeah, but don't do Yeah. Well, maybe. It's not too bad. I mean, there's just maybe one with a, a certain appendage, but it's not it's not X or anything. What writer would you most like to have dessert with? And you should tell us the dessert. Okay, living or dead? Could it be either. Either. Oh either. wow. Um, either. I used to say <laughs> I used to say Dostoevsky, but I don't think he'd be pleasant to have a dessert with. Probably, I would say a tie between Roberto Bolaño or Virginia Woolf. 
Uh, the writer you most like to have sex with. Wow. Another tie between those two. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, well, then definitely Dostoevsky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, I don't know. Um, I will say, just because she's so intriguing, this is going to make me sound like some, I don't know, some sexist pig or something, but she's so mystical, which is Clarice Lispector. Mm. The, uh, the Brazilian writer. I totally writer. see that. I yeah, totally she's just, she's not even, she doesn't even seem human, really. Real. Yeah, yeah, exactly. She doesn't seem real. Which you should not use as an excuse when you're trying to explain it to your wife or... <laughs> exactly, exactly. She's so mystical. She's, she's mystical. Like, she's not even real. <laughs> she's basically Thank like you, you've got my back. The top of the parking structure. You need a Sherpa to get she, to it. Yeah, yeah, come on. <laughs> Uh, is it me? What buddy they most like to have a beer with? Maybe Mario Baiting, because mm-hmm. he just seems like a like a really interesting character. So, and I, I know people in in uh, publishing that know him, that are friends with him, or that publish him even and translate him. Um, he just seems like a really interesting, nice guy. He loves his dogs. I also heard this isn't meant to be like oh, Mark's going to talk about this Mexican writer Mario Baiting. Some of it's not true, but I did hear <laughs> a, a friend who's from Mexico said that. Um, Mario married uh, one of his dogs. A time in your life when you felt the worst about your craft. Oh, wow. Um, Tuesday? <laughs> that's my favorite yes. answer. <laughs> Just any given product. time? Yes. Just when you think things are going good and then you're... I mean, writing is good because it's very humbling. So you think things are good and this and this. And, uh, and at the same time, you know, you... I think any real artist or writer kind of questions themselves and you think like if you get a pat on the back in your mind, you're like, oh good, I fooled them. Like you you always think maybe I'm not, maybe it's fake. And so I think usually you're your own worst critic. So downtime, probably when I was teaching, I just thought, I felt the furthest away from, from being a writer and from what I really love to do. And wasn't doing it on a daily basis or trying to, you know, it's a practice. It's something you try and do as, as often as possible. So probably when I taught. That's the thing about writing. You feel shitty when you're doing it, and then you feel shittier when you're not doing it. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. It's true. Awesome. And yet, it's like one of the best things ever. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it is. That's a great question. That's a great question about, you know, when you feel most down. So I think it can come at any moment. I think, I know John Steinbeck said, and a lot of writers have said that they'll finish a book and when they try and start the next one, it's almost like they've never, like they're starting from scratch. Like they were 16 again mm-hmm. or 19, mm-hmm. that they've never written a book. It doesn't matter that the, the Grapes of Wrath and, you know, whatever, of Mice and Men is behind you. It's just like starting from scratch. Like you've learned nothing. <laughs> so there is that feeling. So I think there's lots of ups and downs, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. So. Effing Shakespeare is brought to you by Bloomsday Writing and Publishing. Write to be read. Find out more about partner publishing and cooperative writing at bloomsdaywriting.com. And by our friends at Houston Creative Space. Photography, video, recording, graphic design, and fine art. Find all things creative at Houston Creative Space. Production assistance and audio editing by Duke Liu. Our social media and marketing maven is Paula Lu, and our chief audio, visual, graphic, and everything else engineer is Fu Lu, who constantly reminds us the perfect is the enemy of the good and who loves us despite the fact that we consistently ignore him at our own peril. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Bloomsday Writer. Show us some love, subscribe to our show, and leave a review on iTunes.